starting off, there's a buddy of mine who likes to needle me about what he says are mommy issues, my mommy issues. And that pisses me off because I don't think it's aptly describing what I'm doing. Like he says that I do this podcast with all women because I have mommy issues. Um, I have issues. Oh, believe me, I have a lot of issues. But I think if you're separated from your birth mother on the day of your birth, for whatever reason, it could be a completely legitimate reason. It could be because the mother dies in labor. Um, the people who are, let's call them motherless children, um, those those people will grow up to have to deal with the fact that they are raised by a foster family or an aunt or a grandmother or whoever, the father. They will grow up having had that grief and that wound as the foundation of their life. And that is not a mommy issue. That is, it's something separate. There's a, a seminal book. Uh, it's a controversial book, but it's called The Primal Wound. And it has to do with what happens when this severing of the child from the mother. The child never gets to see the mother, never be held by the mother, etc., etc. Um, this is, to call this an adoption, an adoption problem or an adoptee problem is a little bit of a, you know, okay, yeah, it happens with children who are sent out, particularly with closed adoptions. And a lot of those children um, grow up to what they call over-indexed. They're overrepresented in various mental illnesses. And they also, and the, the one we're going to focus on today is uh, addiction or substance use disorder is that for whatever reason they um, seek out and use anesthetics to try to numb the pain or fill the hole or those kind of things. And I just need to get that off my chest because you're going to hear today's guest talk about both the primal wound and how what a profound, profound impact that book had on her, written by an adoptive parent, by the way, not by a birth parent and not by an adoptee. Also about how she has done so much work. I super respect the amount of work she has done to heal, you know, to become a fully formed human being and to be able to fully embrace her identity. My friend Nancy Day. And I said, oh, I've been looking for you my whole life. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson. Welcome to, uh, I almost said man listening. In Her Words, we've changed the name. In Her Words. I hope you like it. Let me know on uh, the, so the various social media what you think. Today's guest, Nancy Day, who I know is a strong woman in recovery. I super admire her. And now we are doing um, some work together surrounding adoptees in recovery, specifically 12-step recovery. And I'll tell you more about that after today's conversation with my friend Nancy. Where were you born? Evanston, Illinois. Hospital or home? Hospital. Cook County. Oh. Uh, Cook County Hospital. I think of that as Chicago. It's Evanston. Okay, which is north of the city. Uh-huh, just. 
That's where Northwestern is. Yes. Okay. Is there a Northwestern connection or is just slight? Yes. What is it? Uh, through uh, my birth families that I found out later. How did you figure out this was the place of your birth? On my birth certificate. How did you get your birth certificate? It's not the original. It's the adoptee birth certificate, but it does say where I'm born. Well, mine says I was born in Albany, Georgia, and I was in fact born in Macon. So they actually included the correct information. Mm -hmm. Huh? They did. Is that because your adopted parents were in the same town? They weren't originally. They lived about, I don't know, an hour, hour away from Chicago when I was adopted. So how much do you know? <laughs> I know everything. Oh, you do. And how did you find out everything? Uh, in stages. Um, when I was about 14, I think my mom wrote to the adoption agency and asked for whatever information they could share. So I got a letter telling me that my birth parents were um, 16 and 17 or 18. I think 17, I think it was legal age kids, <laughs> that she was 5'1", 120 pounds, blonde hair, planning to go to college. He was 5'9", um, blonde, blue. They said they were both blue-eyed. And um, they said that she did not tell him she was pregnant and that he was also adopted. Huh. And they told me nothing about his side of the family other than that little bit about him. And then they told me that her father had died when she was nine. She was raised by her mother. And her mother was a statistician, whatever that is, which wasn't true. Do you think they put that false information in there intentionally? I think it was intentional. And I had I, I didn't know it was false until I found my birth families. But once I found them and started getting the background and the history, my birth mother was actually, I mean, my birth grandmother, maternal side, was actually a writer. And my father was a writer. And my father had a column in a local newspaper in Chicago. He wrote for the Sun-Times at, at the time. That's and, a big deal. And so they were afraid of the crossover. So they, they and, what they, do you mean the crossover? Well, that they would recognize me. Oh. Like, you know, like if there was any information. My dad, wrote, when my parents adopted my brother, my dad, his his column that week was about the adoption of their son and, you know, how excited they were. And then, so they assumed he would do that again with me and they told him not to. Because I later found out my birth mother was born and raised in Evanston and actually still lived there her whole life. So when... When my parents adopted me, we lived in a town called Glen Ellen, which I think is about an hour outside of Chicago West. When um, we moved to the D.C. area until I was 10, and then we went back to the Chicago area, and we were in Winnetka. So I was about 5, 8, 10 miles from my birth mom most of my life without knowing it. Now, the Tribune columnist got nationwide attention. Should I know your dad's name? Um, I, I doubt it. He was... He wrote for what was son, his name? His name was George Terry Turner, and he went by Terry Turner. And he what wrote, kind of column did he write? Uh, it started out as um, kind of opinion and like television review, and it was sort of in that whole TV world. He went to work for NBC when we moved to D.C., hated it, 
my mom said, left the best job he ever had. And he went to work for Joan Clooney, who was helping get the public broadcasting system legislation through. So he helped write some of that. He freelanced. Any relation to uh, um, Rosemary or George? I don't think so. Joan Clooney. I don't think and, so. And um, what did he hate about NBC? Just the politics and the the backbiting and the... Did you ever get to go into the Sun-Times or NBC? Mm -hmm. You did? Mm -hmm. Did you think that was fun as a little kid? I did. I did. I loved the, like, the printing, you know, we got to go see the whole, when they run the paper and the noise and all that kind of stuff, yeah. He also worked for the Peace Corps. He was a, he was a liberal at heart. So we were there up until 73. Mm. I was born in 63. So a little bit of time in Glen Ellen then DC, and then we went back to Winnetka in 73. He worked for the public television in Chicago. It was Channel 11, the TTW. Okay, and yeah. And he was there all up until mid-80s. What did he do? He was a PR writer. You huh. know, he sort of was the... Promoted it. Yeah. Was yeah. a believer. Yeah, absolutely. Not a big believer in commercial television, no. a big believer in public yes. broadcasting. Yes. yes. Yeah. Fascinating. I saw Jim Croce's last um, performance. He played on soundstage, which was filmed there. And my dad took my brother and I, and by the time we had driven home, the plane had crashed. Oh my God. And how did that hit you as a kid? Just, you know, it was that first kind of, it wasn't the first person who died in my world, but it was like to be someplace and have such a good time and have something happen. And in just such a short span of time, something you can't quite fathom happen. You know, really affected my brother. Yeah. So, like, there was a lot in, you know, us kind of kids of the 60s and 70s. You know, everybody thinks about the drug overdoses, but there were a lot of just straight-up plane crashes yeah. that people died in. Yeah. 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 And it, it's so soul-crushing because they were just, their careers were just blowing up, you know. and then, To the point that they could fly to get to where they were. Exactly. To to. No longer on the bus. Right. Yeah. That was the status, and then it, you know, came back in a bad way. Yeah. It sounds like that you were really close with your dad and your mom, that you, yes. and that she kind of went to bat for you in trying to get the non-identified. Well, she was not threatened. A lot of adopting parents are hugely threatened. You know, as a kid, I did not appreciate the advocacy she had for me, because you know, she's your mom and she's always been like that. And you don't really know that that might be different for somebody else, but she really was. She has always been my champion and my advocate. Interestingly enough, I was much older, I think post-college when she told me that she had always had a sneaking suspicion that she was an in-family adoption. Mm. And um, she did confirm that after my grandmother died she never wanted to bring it up because she didn't want to hurt her when my mom asked her about it and she could still feel the shame and she just couldn't press her for answers so she didn't get all the information she wanted there was a married doctor who was a professor or somehow affiliated with the college she went to she rode home with him from a dance and that's really all she would say so my mom wasn't sure if it was a choice or not a choice that mm. she became pregnant. He did take care of her. He sent her somewhere to have the baby and do all that. Um, her May's father would not let her bring the baby home. And so then it was arranged that her cousin would then 
raise the baby. So my mom was raised by Carlin and Myrtle Dean in Charleston, West Virginia. And May Sol Groves, her birth mother, came to live with them when my mom was around four. So your mom was adopted herself. Yes. Um, why did she decide to adopt? She couldn't have children. Oh, they and tried. do you know why? She, she miscarried over and over and over again. I think maybe five or six times mm. over a 10 year period. Well, 10 years from trying to have babies to when my brother was adopted. I don't know if the last couple of years were they no more miscarriages, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, I always have thought from what she described that it was probably things that today she could get pregnant, but back then you couldn't. Right. You she know? could have done the in vitro or something well, no, like that. Well, I think they do things to not, you know, they do things, they give Fertility. you hormones and different things that allow you to hold on to the pregnancy. She could oh. get pregnant. She just couldn't stay pregnant. She just like, you know, I don't know what the medical part of it is, but I just know that, you know, they might've put her on bed rest and some medicine and then she could have carried. I just always thought that. And hugely heartbreaking. Hugely. She and said she cried all the tears. She thought she'd cried all the tears she had in those years. She didn't cry a lot through my childhood or um, for a long time. She didn't cry. I can imagine that being a hard thing to gear up to go to, knowing that was what you would face. So how did your mom talk to you about getting this document? And You know, I don't remember... I mean, like all my life, I knew I was adopted. It wasn't like something we couldn't talk about. And I think it just would come up from me sometimes. And I would either wonder about something or um, ask about something, you know, and they didn't know. And I think, when I, I think when I was 14, I just said, maybe I'd read someplace that, that, that you could do that, you know, because they were starting to be like search, you know, connections you could make and services you could you know buy or whatever the thing i remember most and i'm not sure she told me this when she wrote for the information but i know this was a conversation early on at some point she was a hundred percent supportive but also with some caution like you don't know what you're going to find and it may not be the answer you want you may be rejected you may you know like you have to kind of be prepared for all answers and I remember the first time she said that to me, I sort of dismissed it, right? But as time went along, and now looking back, I realized what good advice that was. And I think it, I think it did, I think I had some caution at times that I maybe didn't normally have because that sunk in somehow. Um, I would find myself uh, feeling the urge to search kind of when my life was messy not when everything was good. And it was like, I wanted to feel better. I wanted something to change how, what was going on. And that always seemed like that would be the answer. But then what would happen is that conversation would kind of come in my mind and then I would take no action. The really telling thing was when my life was smooth and great and going wonderful, I never thought about it. Mm. You know, like it would be later that I'd be like, oh, that would have been a perfect time. And I had taken no action. Walk me through how Detective Nancy solved the mystery of her identity. I was born in 63, I'm 58 years old, 58, almost 59. I was born in December, Pearl Harbor Day, December mm. 7th. So at 14, I had the information of their ages and the dynamic, so I thought. But it always bothered me, like how do you get pregnant with somebody and not tell them? So what kind of relationship is that, <laughs> right? And so that was always kind of hanging out there. And then the fact that he was adopted 
I thought, how will I find him? Because the people that he's with don't know like who he is either. And I thought I'd never find him. Um, so years and years passed. I, I signed up for any of those adoption things, put your information in here and they'll put it back. I called the cradle is where I'm adopted from in Illinois, in Evanston. I called them to see what their services were post-adoption now. Illinois was uh, sealed records for a really long time and they're kind of semi-sealed even now. And they had a service, but basically you would pay, I don't know, several thousand dollars with no guarantee. And all they do is write to your family if they still know where you are and inquire if they are open. And that just seemed like, I don't know, the way she talked, it didn't seem like that was going to work. So I just didn't pursue that. So it wasn't until um, maybe 2015 or 16, I did 23andMe. And I did it for my health. I was starting to have some health issues. I thought, you know, I have no history. This is going to be a good picture of my biology that I can't get to any other way. History, story. So I did 23andMe. A slight hope that maybe there'd be a connection. Really, it was for me and my health. Mm. One thing, one strange thing. We were driving along one time and pulled up to a interstate where you have to pay a toll. And on the toll booth, the person's name was Farley. And I... As I was driving and I looked over, I said, Farley, that's an interesting name. And my mom had like a shock moment and she said, oh my God, I think that was the name on your original birth certificate. And I mean, I mean, we were like in the middle of nowhere. Kentucky she had seen it? She had seen at the adoption. She had seen just baby girl Farley. And then it was changed to Nancy Susan Turner. Hmm. Yeah. So she wasn't even 100% sure that was true. But I sort of tucked that away. Like this is a possible name. So um, on my profile, I didn't put much information in 23andMe other than I was adopted. When it came back, I had, the percentages aren't, you know, you get zero point something, something, something. And I had one second cousin pop up and his name was Chris Farmer. And then I had a third cousin pop up and his name was something Farley. Hmm. And that was kind of like, okay, wait. And they were same side not knowing my parents i don't know which side of the family anybody is on but that was sort of the clue so anybody that was related to him i could sort of assume was maternal and paternal and then about gosh six years later seven years later it was february 12th 2020 right before we were going into lockdown with the pandemic at 11.30 at night, I got a ping on my phone and it was 23andMe messages. And it said, you have a message from a relative. And I opened it up and it said, um, looks like you are a close relative to my grandson. We're trying to figure this out. We've done an extensive family genealogy and we can't figure out who you are. <laughs> and so I wrote back and said, oh gosh, I looked at it and it says he's my first cousin, but it was a 15% match. I've never had a one anything, like anything above the point. And he was 15%. And I said, um, yes, I'm adopted. This is what I know. And I said, I was born in Evanston to teenage parents. I believe they were 16 and 18, 19, my birth date and that my father was also adopted. And she wrote back, oh my gosh, I know who your birth father was. Ah. So I actually found him first, yes. which was a huge surprise to me. Yes. Because I really had written that off as a possibility. Yes. 
I can't quite tell you what, I, I think my whole body started to vibrate, like literally vibrate. She said, I believe my husband was your birth father. I'm sorry to tell you he's deceased, but you have four brothers. Wow. And I'm like, it confused me because she didn't say half brothers. And I'm like, is she my mom? Right. And then um, I asked that question and she said, she said half brothers, but I think she was trying to let me know that it was, they were inclusive. Right. Uh. So we made a plan. We exchanged phone numbers and we made a plan to talk in the morning. So now it's like after midnight and we've gone back and forth. I'm, I, I was 56 years old. I've waited my whole life for this. It's 1230 at night. And I'm alone and I have no one to tell. And then um, it hit me that my daughter lives on the West Coast. My oldest daughter lives on the West Coast. And I texted her and I said, are you still awake? And she said, yes. And I called her and told her. And she uh, was like, oh, my God, Mom. <laughs> so, it's so great that you two have that relationship. Yes, that yes. that's someone you can share it with. That's a buddy. Yeah. My, I have two daughters and I have really nice relationships with both of them. And they have an amazing sisterhood, which I love getting to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get along? You had adopted sibling, right? I did not. My oh, brother and I, um, we just, we just didn't click. Yeah. We just didn't. And so you don't have a relationship with him now. I don't really. Kind of through my mom. Yeah. But not, not one-on-one. -on -one. But as a child, he didn't transition well. There was some issue, something. Right. So I'm a big fan of a book that talks about all of this, The Primal Wound. Yes. And reading that was a big experience. Which is like me. a Bible for adoptees. It's yes. like a, yes. it's, it, it was a seminal book. Yes. And what she talks about in there is like, you know, kids go one of two ways, compliant or disruptive. I was compliant. He was disruptive. And mm. that, I mean, that when I read that, I didn't just identify myself in that. I could see him in that. So every single instance she wrote about, I had a memory of it, even if it was just of him and his behavior. And um, it, we just couldn't have been more opposite if we tried. My father and my brother also were not close because my brother was mechanical. He's a car mechanic and like tinkers with motors and can build or do anything. And my dad's a writer and not handy and not uh, that kind of person. And, um, my, I'm sorry, he's deceased. I said that like he was still living, right. you know, and so they were just constantly at each other. Like dinner at my house was just painful. Uh, there was I'm sorry. fighting over my brother wouldn't eat. He'd get up and make a bowl of cereal and my dad would explode because it made him mad. Yeah. I think about, I've always thought of my dad as I was a little bit afraid of him you know, like anger. He never, there was never, he never, I think I got spanked twice in my entire life, but it wasn't that. It was just that he was, I didn't want to disappoint him. And he just could get angry. He was a match, just really mad. And I think about like now as an adult, you know, I know that anger is kind of a cover for fear. And I think, you know, what was he so afraid of? Was it just so overwhelming? You know, was it, was he worried about finances? Was he feeling like a failure as a parent? Was it, you know, what was it that made him so angry and fearful? But yeah. I'm still trying to figure some of that out. <laughs> Why I get so angry about certain things yeah. Yeah. and get dug in. Yeah. Um, I used to be a lot more angry than I am now. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. When did you finally get the conversation with the, with the wife of the birth father? It, like 9.30 in the morning couldn't come soon enough, right? Um, and frankly, it was fascinating because here's someone that is going to tell me who I am. But it's third party still, right? It's a little hearsay. It's her memory. Um, and she was, her name is Penny. And she asked me if she could be my third mom. Oh. And I said, I cannot have enough mothers. And you are the mother of my brothers. And by all means, please be my third mom. And I am, um, she is as much a part of this like building and finding that family. How could she not be? She's their mother. She was excited and it was a lot of information and she was throwing names at me and I needed her to slow down a little because it was like, I, it was a lot. She started with how they met. He went to Vietnam. Hmm. So what we pieced together was that he had met Tony, my birth mom in Evanston in early 60. Oh, two. And because I was born in December, so maybe end of 61, 62, somewhere in there. But they only dated for two, three months. It was just kind of a short fling. And then he left for Vietnam. She had no intention of telling him anything anyway. But um, and I learned that from her later. But Penny doesn't know this. She doesn't know who Tony is. She doesn't. They didn't know that he had a daughter. He didn't know that he had a daughter. So nobody was looking back to that time. So she's trying to figure out like what the time frame was. She just knew he lived in Evanston with his family and then left for Vietnam. He did two tours in Vietnam and came back in 60, 68. Wow. She went to a USO dance and he was there. A group of girls got on a bus, went to the USO dance and she met him there. There were rules about you could only dance once or twice with someone and you couldn't like linger to there. Were, the socializing was very controlled by the matrons of the dance. And um, he asked her to dance three times and she did actually dance with him three times. She said, oh, rule breaker. Sandal. Yeah. And um, <laughs> they were riding back on the bus and one of the other girls said, Penny, I think that guy you were dancing with is following the bus. And he was. And he followed her back to her school, said he, you know, wanted to date. I think they were married a few months later. Like, wow. Yeah, it was very fast. Quite the connection. Quite the connection. So that's how they met. She, she at that point backed up and told me that his story, because I was like, well, what about him being adopted? And she said, well, it wasn't exactly adopted. He was abandoned at nine. His oh. whole family. The story goes that his mother and his aunt ran away, mm. abandoning both of sets of both families. And the father being overwhelmed, gave the baby to 
a relative mm. and dumped the other three children in an orphanage. Oh my God. And never to be seen again. Oh so my at nine God. years old, he was dumped in an orphanage in Southern Illinois somewhere, a horrible place that had horrible effect on him. She said he wouldn't talk about it much. She said, but he would never become, he would never vomit. Like if something, if his stomach goes, like he would not vomit at all costs. And he finally told her, if you threw up at that place, they made you eat it. Oh my God. And I, so the combination of Vietnam and oh, it gets worse. complete abandonment. Well, how is this guy not like a complete? Wait for it. Okay. <laughs> so he is adopted around 10, 12, 11, somewhere in there. The abandonment, the, all this trauma, mm -hmm. you know. Sexual abuse. Who I, knows what happened to him at the orphanage? How did he ever get beyond that? He didn't. He and Penny started having children, and he had been exposed to a lot in Vietnam and probably Agent Orange and whatever else chemicals were out there. And they're on little army bases around the world, and they were in some place in Texas, and their first child died shortly after birth. So now they have the loss of a child. There was lots of infidelity in their marriage later. After they had separated and he had, I don't know what his experience was because I'm just getting bits and pieces of it. And there's been some sort of revelations among my brothers about some of this time because they have adult perspective now that they're thinking about it. Um, because I asked if he was an alcoholic and mm. everybody said, no, 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 no. That went on and on and on. And, and then the last time I talked to him about it was Scott, one of my brothers he was telling me about all the beer cans that were at the house and like that he'd gone over there for some recycling project or something. And I'm thinking, you don't see it. I see it. Mm -hmm. Right. Basically he had a boat and he rode out in the lake in the middle of the boat and shot himself. And he had two notes in his pocket. One was an apology to um, Penny and to Scott, my second oldest brother who is gay. And Charlie was really, cruel to him about that then the other one was to tony the oldest brother and basically it dropped everything in his lap and that's been really hard for him like sort of blamed him no the responsibility of dealing oh with just it. said up. just said you handle it you're now. the man now yeah you're the oldest you handle it now you know it was the phone number uh. you know it wasn't even a letter it was a phone number like that was the only contact for the police was tony and then an apology to penny and to scott Wow. And my first thought, and this is all in the first conversation with her that morning. And my first thought was, how did he manage to hang on that long? Right. I mean, I completely understood. I thought that was a lot to live through. And what must it have been like in his head? It was such an education. And my experience when I read that book, I'm a, I'm a fight. I'm not a flight. And I've never been a freeze. And that book made me freeze. I literally felt like I was having a panic attack. I almost didn't know which way to go. Like, I just was paralyzed. And it was the knowing. This, this rang so true for me. I immediately knew this. I had experienced this. These were memories I couldn't get to. They were things I didn't have language for, but I knew them. 
like I know how to breathe. I knew them. Every single thing she said, I could own as part of my experience. It was, it was just, it was just like opening the door to the truth that had always just been behind that closed door and I knew something was there and I just couldn't get in. And then reading how she laid that all out, I, I understand. I knew my birth mother from the womb and I experienced being separated from her and everything that happened in that time period. And born in 63 at a really nice adoption agency. My mom said sometimes they had 55 babies. I don't know how many caregivers. I'm sure my needs were met, but I don't think there was much nurturing. I don't think the same people hold me daily, you know, if I get held. Right. And you know what that does. Right. My mom said when she got my brother, he didn't cry for three days because nothing was going to come from it. Yeah. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I know women who are adults who had never cried. Wow. So the things that jumped out at me were like the evidence that this was true were some of the, some of the, uh, the stories of her study from her doctorate. How did you experience your birthday? I was always sick and I always cried. And my mother wrote it off to, I got overexcited because it was my birthday. And I actually was a grieving child on a yearly anniversary with no knowing of that, but that's how it was expressed. And that's, you know, and so when she's describing the different things that happened to children on that anniversary, I'm like, I did that my whole life. I did that. It was a grief anniversary. It was not a celebration. That was my experience. I had evidence of that. It just a thing after thing just proved it over and over again in her examples. It was just scary, but affirming at the same time. Overwhelming, but true. It also changed everything. In what way? Um, I'm a seeker. I'm a person in recovery. Mm-hmm. And so I've done a lot of work. It never touched this. And it bothered me that my um, program of recovery couldn't seem to touch something when it had, when I could use my tools in any place in my life to know, you know, how to handle the situation or whatever it is, that program works for me. It's a way of living for me and it works for me, except here. Well, I have theory. Until I got the knowledge that I got. Right. And And then then all of a sudden you can put it together. Once I had language, it went, and it just perfectly worked and it changed everything. I got to the book. Right. Because my sponsor had texted me a uh, article from the Huffington Post, and the title was, the young girl wrote this, November is Adoption Awareness Month, but I won't be celebrating. And I thought, who knew we had an awareness month, and why is this girl angry? And I read the article, and she basically said, adoption, the, the, the concept and the construct of adoption is for everyone but the adoptee. Right. It takes away all our rights. It keeps everything secret from us. We don't get to know anything. And then we're told to be grateful. Right. And she said, I am grateful. I have lots to be grateful for. But but this, this false narrative of this was good for you only feeds the trauma. Yes. It's a secret. And that, her 
Her putting that into a sentence also was like, oh my God, yes, right? I just, I couldn't allow myself to think this way. My brain, the, the self-protection didn't let me go down this path in, for whatever reason. And um, when I started reading this, it was just my truth. My mother never held me. Her mother was with her at my birth and she, her mother thought it would be better if she didn't. She thought it would be harder for her to let, she always wanted to put me up for adoption. She said she thought of me the whole time. She said, I kind of thought of myself as a surrogate the whole time I was pregnant. You were somebody else's baby and I was just getting you to her, which I thought maybe is how she coped. I need to butt in for a quick second and say there are three basic ways you can do this kind of detective work to, to reunite families that were split by adoption. Um, one way is to do it yourself. That's what I did. Do the research yourself um, with the combination of the DNA plus, you know, any kind of relevant details you get from this so-called non-identifying information. Two is... You can enlist the help of a, of a friend. There are a lot of searchers out there who want to help reunite families, and, and they will volunteer, and that's what Nancy did. And the third way is to hire someone, like a private detective. But I know people who have done it all different ways, and in Nancy's case, she uh, enlisted the help of someone who was more than willing to do it. They, some call themselves search angels, and this woman's name was Lisa. And so you need to know about Lisa for what she's about to tell you. Lisa called her. She said that she found that coming out of the blue like that, sometimes it was good to have that third party. Right. And she offered and I accepted. And so she called um, Tony and she said that she was doing some, you know, uh, family tracing for some people. And she thought that Tony might be able to help her. It was like the voicemail she left. And so they, she started asking questions and Tony, you know, seemed comfortable and stuff. And then Lisa pretty much just asked her, you know, by chance, would you have been the family member that put a baby up for adoption in 1963? And Tony answered, wow, you know, I really was expecting this call one day. She said, but if I'd known this was this call, I wouldn't have had my phone on speaker. <laughs> <laughs> and she had her daughter in the car, who she had not told yet. Oh, wow. And so that was a little bit of a rough moment. And that's always been my biggest worry. I don't want to cause harm to anybody. I don't want to step into your life in a way that is going to be bad for you. So I felt a little bit of fear at that. And a lot of adoptees are very thoughtful about not trying to yeah. intrude. Yeah, because particularly like on my on my father's side, these people didn't know I existed. They don't have to welcome me. They don't, what am I to them? Their dad's been dead for years. I'm just some rant, you know, it's so random. And that wasn't the reception I got, which was lovely. Um, Tony said that she'd be happy to talk to Lisa, but she needed to have a conversation with her daughter. And then, so then they spoke about an hour later. Yeah. Tony had been 16 when I was born. She tried to go back to high school, couldn't re-engage after being out with the year of being pregnant. So she ended up getting her GED. She started off, I think she worked for somebody. Somewhere along the way, there was a mentor that saw something in her, and she got that bug. She graduated college, got her master's degree, and became one of the corporate women of the 80s. 
and was very successful and didn't think she wanted to have children. She married a guy, um, British guy, and they've been married for over 50 years. And somewhere in her 40s, her biological clock said, oh, my God, you do need to have a child. And then she couldn't get pregnant. It was too late. And so she said in her mind, it sort of completed the circle, but they adopted a daughter from China. So she completed the circle by yeah. adopting a baby. And um, so I have a half sister from China and four <laughs> brothers. She is younger than my children, which is also kind of funny. Wow. Yeah. And then Tony and I spoke the next day. First thing she said to me was, I always knew you'd call. And I thought, really? And she said, yeah, when I adopted later in this conversation, that wasn't one of the first things she said, but when I did that, I did a lot of research and it was common that women in their late thirties and forties is usually when they go looking because often the the adopted families, maybe someone has passed away or maybe life's the time frame seems short and that was the timing. And I said, oh, I've been looking for you my whole life. And that surprised her. So it was, um, a little awkward at first because there was history here and there was a story and I knew there was shame and guilt. And so I wanted to tread very carefully. She was very open. She was very forthright, um, not apologetic in that she said, I don't want anything I say hurt you. She said, you know, this was a, this was a hard time for me. And she said, frankly, I wanted to have the baby and move on. She said that wasn't healthy and that didn't really serve me, but that's where I was. And, you know, it didn't hurt. I understand. I, I kind of always knew. How could I have not been a problem for a 16-year-old girl finding herself pregnant in 1963? I knew that part. And I didn't hold that against her. That wasn't, none of that dynamic was the part that was what caused trauma. That I could make sense of. The separation causes the trauma. Yes. Not the adoption. Correct. And not knowing that, I couldn't ever figure out why. If, like, I, I would sort of check myself, like, well, am I, am I, am I unaware that that really bothered me, and that's the deep thing? And I, and I, no, it really wasn't. Well, in your experience, what is the connection between the trauma of this separation and substance use disorder or addiction? I would say that my primary. Um, what that what the trauma put me on a track of finding and keeping myself secure i was very anxious as a child i was very i hate the term self-esteem because it just kind of doesn't really describe it like you know i felt like a fraud somehow like that's a good i never felt um good enough I never felt like I, I felt like I missed the memo all the time. Like I just didn't quite get what was going on. I had a form of dyslexia and like short-term memory learning things. So I wasn't, I was smart, but did bad in school. I was a halting reader as a child. Like everything made me feel different and separate. And that just seemed to compound all these other things. And so I was constantly trying to arrange everything to be okay. That's really hard to do as a kid. And then, you know, I don't remember, I don't remember a moment of being like, I'm not even sure it was until I hit recovery that I made the connection that drinking 
calmed all that. I just knew I could, you know, I felt I didn't feel as afraid. In recovery, they talk a lot about alcoholic thinking. Yes. I see a huge connection with alcoholic thinking coming from my trauma. Yes. I don't think the trauma caused me to be an alcoholic, but I think that the two are perfectly suited to go hand in hand. Yes. Why do I behave the way I do? Why do why do these scenarios come up in my mind? Why why does all of this happen? In recovery, they might say that's alcoholic thinking. I now have another piece to talk about it with to say that alcoholic thinking was fueled by the separation trauma. And so it's dual powered alcoholic thinking, if you want to give it that kind of term. And that was why I was somewhat frustrated when all the tools of my recovery program worked so beautifully. And yet there was this little piece that still seemed to be gnawing. And I didn't, I wasn't, it, it, it wasn't devastating. It wasn't a problem. It, there was just an awareness that there's more, I have more work to do. I'm not there yet. I needed more information. I needed another source, but I didn't even know which direction to turn. Mm-hmm. And kind of in my world, the universe lays things before me when I'm ready. And a text came to me that led me to a path that took me in a different direction. And in a, from, from November of 19 to February of 2020, I had broken up with somebody I was in a relationship with that was really not good for me, but I was hanging on out of that trauma-based stuff, even 12 years sober at that point, right? I can't quit this relationship because of what drives me from that trauma. Be secure. Don't be alone. You're not okay if you're alone. I use my tools in every place in my life, but I can't use it there. And then in a moment of whatever, that relationship, I say, you know what? I need to, I'm out and I leave. The text comes, I read, I seek out a therapist friend of mine who's also in recovery. So she speaks that language. She has not worked much with adoption and how we started out in therapy because she does trauma therapy. So how we started out was she kept relating everything to now. What does it look like in your world today? And, but every example, I've just broken up with this relationship that I didn't really, I still really cared about this man and I didn't want that relationship to end, but it needed to because it wasn't good for me. And talking about it this way is really making everything worse. And I said, we got to start over. I said, I need another, I need another direction to deal with this. She said, bring me the book, highlight everything in there that gave you that freeze triggered feeling. And she read it and we started over. And then we started talking about my childhood and we talked about all the ways it showed up in my childhood. And by by early January, basically we were just sitting visiting with each other. And she said, I think we're done, aren't we? And I said, I think we are. Mm. I don't feel the same way. I don't feel the triggers. I don't feel the, I don't feel the same at all. The mystery's gone and I have tools and I'm using them on all this stuff. And so now when I'm thinking I'm not okay, it's not without answer or reason and the rest of my, you know, spiritual tools work for me. And now it's about three years later. And what's really interesting is I've had this awareness lately of, wow, I've had 
three years of life without that being the driving force. And from where I was when I left that relationship, which was not financially able to take care of myself, to completely living on my own, completely in a job that I never saw coming that is really good for me, and they're paying me really well, I am 100% self-sustaining, which I don't think I've ever been in my life because I always tied myself to someone else, not healthily out of fear and that trauma. And I never recognized that. I was always somebody who recharged my batteries with the crowd and being with others. I am so happily living alone. I need downtime. I need completely alone. I've never needed that in my entire life, ever. Somebody asked me the other day about dating. I haven't dated anybody. I'm not adverse, but I'm not seeking. I've never been that person. It's, it's fascinating, frankly. It's fascinating to like, are you isolating? Are you like, are, is this a negative thing? And I'll, no, actually I'm perfectly good. This is good for me. That it's just weird. It's weird to be so content in things that are so different. I have this feeling of authenticity I have never felt before, ever. I used to care so much about what everybody else thought of me, so much. I care what you think because I care about you, but I don't really care what you think about me. So what did the discovery of your biological origins, your, your origin story, what did that do for your recovery, for your spiritual development? I felt like I, as a little girl, the visual I had about God was like the floorboards, there's a crack and I'm looking up. I'm down in that crack in the floorboards. I've fallen through a crack and I've been forgotten. That's how it felt. I faked it for a long time about being believing in God or like understanding what people were talking about when they were talking about personal relationship, that meant nothing because I had nothing like that going on. I just felt separated from God and, and forgotten. Like I'll choose you, but you don't even know I'm here kind of feeling. Um, recovery took me out of that and brought me into, um, take the action forward and just keep moving forward. If you keep taking actions, you know, those things grow and you have awareness of that. I can't tell you when or what actually were those moments where things changed for me. They just did over time. I went from not trusting to trusting. And then I went from trusting to relying and a daily practice of knowing that there's something bigger than me and that it's out there and I can connect with it. What happened with this whole finding my origins and my, my birth story, that had always been my story. And I remember thinking, even when, even when we connected and then we go into lockdown and I'm like, are you, can I swear? Oh, please. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I have waited my whole entire life. And now I am in quarantine with the world and cannot meet these people in person. This isn't funny. Right? 
but I wasn't alone. This wasn't just happening to me. This was happening to everybody. And I was like, okay, my, my, my way of life tells me what's good about this. Right. And it allowed us time and a slow get to know you and conversations without pressures and energies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It served a purpose. It served a huge purpose and it was a gift. And in that gift, as I got to know people, I did interesting things. We could talk all day. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? Oh, wow, Stuart. What is my legacy? I'm a part of. I've always been a part of. I can have traumas and I can heal. I can connect. I'm really okay right where I am. It's not all about me. You have helped to heal not just yourself, but you've helped to heal these families, to close the loop. This is the opposite of families that don't speak to each other. This is a family coming back together again and being whole. I didn't even tell you that one of my brothers called me and said, hey, I'm drunk and I need help, and now he's almost a year sober. Awesome. And I didn't talk. I just told him who I was and talked about my experience. And the thing he told me was, I felt like you were telling my secrets. I He wasn't even on my radar as somebody with a problem because I, I never saw him drink. He can relate. That's awesome. God bless you. Thank you for sharing. Thank all you this. for asking me too. So Nancy and a group of other adoptees who are in recovery are starting an in-person 12-step uh, group uh, which is going to meet at the Mer Metrolina Intergroup office in Charlotte. Um, and it strikes me, if you're not in the Charlotte area, uh, there is an online group, which was based in California, which meets on Saturday afternoons, and they have a Facebook, a closed Facebook group. But there's a, there's a growing movement of adoptees who are in recovery, in 12-step recovery, uh, who talk about the issues that are specific to people who've experienced adoption and and then also uh, addiction substance use disorder alcoholism ever what you want to call it um, there's a strong overlap if you have a picture of venn diagram with two overlapping ovals you know that middle part is the the ones who are uh, adopted as as small children babies in these closed adoptions that are incredibly painful and they choose to anesthetize with some kind of substance which ends up becoming life-threatening uh, itself. Um, if you're interested in that, Metrolina Intergroup is on Elizabeth. It's going to be in the meeting schedules. We start in August 2022. Uh, I believe it's the first Tuesday of August at 7.30 in the evening. And um, it'll be interesting to see because we'll try to stick with the 12-step literature but also introduce uh, the primal wound and other uh, things to sort of explain what's going on there. So I hope it's helpful. If not there, seek out groups like it um, online, on Zoom, and uh, in person. Thanks, guys. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller, and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me.
If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported the two and a half years, almost three of this podcast. And um, it's just hugely meaningful to me. Thanks so very much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.